Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, May the 24th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Ireland's new electoral commission, which came into existence late last year, uh, faces its first and for many involved in politics, most important challenge now as it sets out to address the thorny question of how many TDs the next doll should have and what revisions will be needed to existing constituency boundaries to accommodate that new number of TDs. As we have heard previously on this podcast on a couple of occasions, there is literally no subject which is of greater interest to this country's elected uh, representatives and those who aspire to be elected at the next general election. So we did want to look today at the various issues of principle and practicality which are involved. And to do that, I am most delighted to be joined by political scientist Dr. Theresa Reedy from the Department of Government and Politics at University College Cork, by Dr. Adrian Kavanagh from the Department of Geography at Maynooth University. And also here is Cormac McQuinn, who doesn't have a doctorate from our own political staff, but he's been covering this ongoing story for for us. Hello to you all. Good morning. Good morning, Hugh. How are you? Cormac, I'll go to you first because, as I say, you've been covering... Maybe you could just, for the benefit of our listeners who may not be uh, have been following it as closely as the average uh, politician is, uh, what is the Electoral Commission and how did it come to be and what are its functions now? Sure. I mean, the Electoral Commission is is kind of a, a catch-all organisation to to kind of govern lots of lots of aspects of our our politics. Uh, it's obviously one of its first tasks, and perhaps one of its trickiest is this constituency review that it it is to carry out this year. But it's it's not just that. There are also uh, things like when Ireland holds a referendum, it will be tasked with providing that unbiased information the the facts of the question and and the argument that is that will be had so that and replaces the previous referendum commission sure yeah, yeah yeah another another uh, another responsibility will be uh, registering political parties that's currently i think in the 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 remit of the standards and public office commission the um regulation of political advertising is is also going to be uh, part of the electoral commission's role and also we should add the electoral register which which is a significant responsibility as well isn't it sure and yeah. which has, has often been in a, a state of disrepair over the years, as, as, as we know. But this is the most important bit, as I say. From, well, in, terms of it's, the, in terms of the people, when you're up around Leinster House uh, every day, this is the, this is the bit that uh, is most interesting to them, isn't it? Absolutely. The, the electoral constituency reviews can make or break careers. Uh, it's, it is a topic of intense speculation and conversation in Leinster House at the moment, uh, as can be seen from the, the many submissions that have been made to the Electoral Commission by TDs and senators and, and councillors, I suppose, as well, who, who might be hoping to get, get that doll seat someday. Um, they've all got ideas as to how constituency boundaries should be drawn, how many seats could be in various constituencies. Uh, they're, they're sharing them with the, the Electoral Commission, uh, whether or not any of these uh, suggestions are taken on board by what is an independent body uh, remains to be seen, but we, we will find out in the coming months. So the important thing really here is not just the fact that this is a new, a new body, Theresa, but that it has to address two salient facts. One is Ireland is changing. 
and there's a lot more people in Ireland now than there were even five or six years ago. And the other is that um, we operate these things within guardrails, I suppose, set out by the constitution. So the question of how many TDs is dictated by how many people and Ireland is changing. So that that number is going to change. Absolutely. We, we have very clear structures within which these decisions uh, have to be made. There's an article in the Constitution. There, there are two very important articles in the Constitution. One which sets the uh, ratio of people to members of parliament. So we have to have one member of parliament for every 20 to 30,000 people. And it's really important to, to kind of emphasise people. It's not citizens, it's not voters, it's people. So all waves of migration are relevant in terms of the size of the uh, of the doll. And then the second um, article is making it clear that it has to be roughly equal um, representation levels across the country. So the representation has to be fair. So we can't have, you know, three or four TDs for, you know, the whole of Dublin and then we might give, you know, 25 to, well, I, I presently reside in Cork and the Corkonians obviously would prefer a greater representation anyway. It so, seems only reasonable. Uh, 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 to any Corkonian, that would be absolutely true. So you can't do that. There has to be, broadly speaking, equal representation throughout the country. So that has, a, you know, those are the kind of uh, the, the, the major structures uh, that um, uh, shape how the decisions will be made. And then there are kind of layers of law within that that will have to kind of come into play and some of those were changed as part of the setting up of the uh, of the electoral commission. It's probably also worth noting that we've had independent decision making for uh, doll boundaries for quite some time. There are some excellent examples of gerrymandering. That's kind of the political design of uh, electoral boundaries to suit particular parties going back into the 70s and and earlier. But actually, since then, we've been kind of on a pathway to actually make this more objective and less partisan. So. So the political parties in power have less capacity to shape outcomes to suit their needs. And that's important because if we think about what's happening in other countries, particularly in the United States, uh, there is, you know, a high degree of partisanship. It's appalling and, gerrymandering uh, in some uh, American states. And, and really affecting representation um, and, and affecting the capacity of particular parties to succeed in different areas. So we've been on a journey, uh, if you want, for 30 or 40 years, moving away from that kind of partisanship. So now these, this kind of essential function is going to rest with the Electoral Commission, but it does have a series of previous independent uh, bodies on whose work it can draw from. So the uh, the Electoral Acts have told us that we have to apply the uh, constitutional requirements, which gives us a range, according to the Electoral Act, of between 171 and 181 TDs. And um, those are going to have that to would be, be based on our preliminary census results from our, last our year. Our preliminary census results, and so we're we're waiting, I suppose, on the the final results um, before the kind of concrete work um, uh, will be concluded. And we also expect that the Commission will probably come in at the upper end of that to ensure um, stability because a lot of the population projections are that we're going to increase. And one of the things that's actually written into the Electoral Act is that continuity of structure should be a factor for the Electoral Commission when it's making its decisions. So that would suggest you'd go towards the upper end so that you could operate, broadly speaking, the same electoral boundaries into the future. Probably a relatively disruptive 
quite large change now uh, and you don't want to have to do the same thing again in only five or six years time. Exactly and, and we're expecting that this could actually be quite disruptive. If you look at specific constituencies uh, you know there are very few of them that are kind of now within constitutional boundaries so it makes sense to do a fairly substantial boundary redraw now and hope that that will actually sustain you um, into at, at least two to three elections into the, the future. The other things that they have been asked to consider of course are geographic um county boundaries. So uh, insofar as that is practical, not to kind of uh, uh, violate uh, county boundaries and also uh, significant uh, geographical features. So mountain ranges, large rivers, which often create almost, well, they're physical, but also psychological divides within uh, within counties. So there are very clear guidelines that the Electoral Commission will have to work off. There's the constitutional numerical limits, but then there are these um, somewhat more intangible um, aspects that have have to be uh, addressed, like county boundaries, like continuity uh, and kind of physical boundaries. So it leaves us at a kind of quite interesting moment where we expect that there's going to be very significant redraw of boundaries, um, which will uh, have important implications, particularly for candidates and different political parties as to where their electoral fortunes will, will lie, which is why, of course, in Linster House, they're watching this most closely indeed. So there's an awful lot in that and we might come a little bit later to the questions of both the practicality and maybe some of the principles that might underlie having as representative uh, a, a parliament as possible, Adrian. But, you know, you're a geographer, so with your geographer's hat on, maybe just give us a little bit more detail on the way in which Ireland's population is changing and what that might mean. Because obviously it's not even across all the country. Ireland's becoming more urban. Some towns and cities are growing faster than others. So presumably we can expect to see um, the, the fact that there are more people living on the East Coast, more people living perhaps in Cork and perhaps in Galway as well, um, reflected in the number of TDs in those sorts of areas. Yeah, uh, that's normally been the case since the population growth trend really started to peak or really started to pick up for in the 1990s. You, This was an interesting census in that Everywhere across the country was growing in terms of population. And there wasn't that same kind of focus in Dublin. The county that had the biggest percentage growth in population this time round was Longford. Uh, so there wasn't that same trend. But the overall trend, more or less, since over the last 20, 30 years, has been, as you said, the main focus of population growth probably on the outer suburbs of Dublin, West Dublin, North Dublin, a uh, place like Blanchardstown, for instance. Also the counties uh, bordering on Dublin, Mead, Kildare and North Wicklow also. And this commuter belt has also spread into other neighbouring counties. So you've got people living in Cavan who probably are commuting in and out to Dublin every day. So Cavan, uh, the Midland counties, Wexford, Carlow, Kilkenny... All these areas have been drawn into the Dublin commuter belt. And that's why, even in this census, the big growth really has probably been in, as I say, the outer suburbs of Dublin, but most of the counties of Leinster. And over time, you have seen the rebalancing of TD numbers over the last few, the last few constituency commission reports. You did see a rebalancing of TD numbers in that you saw parts of Western Ireland lose TDs. You also saw some parts of Dublin lose TDs as well. Like we probably think population is growing all over Dublin, but there's certain areas in Dublin, the more settled parts of Dublin, the areas that are very well 
developed where there's no real scope for new housing, places like Clontarf, for instance. So these areas actually saw a slight decrease in population in some of the censuses over the last few years. So we've seen, say, in in previous reports, even constituencies like the old Dublin Northeast lose seats. So it's not just kind of a, a West versus East trend. You can also see interesting micro geographies in terms of population trends as well. And that, of course, feeds into the redrawing of constituencies and also feeds into which counties or which areas are gaining the most TD. So if you look at Kildare, for instance, uh, I'm old enough to remember when Kildare was a standalone five-seat constituency. It's now two constituencies. And possibly in this report, you might even have uh, nine seats in Kildare, but at least there'll be eight seats. So Kildare, Mead, probably between those two counties over the space of a few decades, they've gained three seats each, or they will after this report. Uh, other areas, Sligo Leitrim, for instance, Roscommon, uh, probably losing seats, even and even with this population growth, you won't be back to the good old days of a four-seat standalone Sligo Leitrim made up of the two counties, or a three-seat standalone Roscommon County, because the population just isn't there anymore. So I mean, that's all very interesting. It gives a picture of, of more complexity than I suggested, where it's just a move to urban. I mean, the, the growth of commuter Ireland, I think, is probably one of the things, Cormac, that, that really informs it. There's a key issue here, um, Theresa lightly touched on it, which is that it's not just the Constitution which regulates the decisions which the Electoral Commission will make. There is also an Electoral Act. Uh, and some of the some of the points which um, which Adrian mentioned there, you know, relate to that, which is how big should a constituency be? All right, the constitution has quite a lot of leeway there. Um, the Electoral Act narrows those options a little bit. Is that right? Sure. I mean, the Electoral Commission has been has been told to stick within constituencies of three, four, or five seats. Um, I mean, in in the past, in the the earlier decades of the state, there were there were much larger uh, constituencies of several several seats, and I. There has been an argument from uh, a lot of quarters, um, smaller political parties particularly, but I, I know Adrian made a similar argument in his submission to the Electoral Commission that uh, six-seat constituencies might might solve a lot of the headaches for for the Electoral Commission. I mean, it would it would make life easy for a place like Wexford, where there are currently five seats that the population justifies another one. So why, why does the current act favour the, the smaller number? It's it's hard it's hard to know it's it doesn't make much sense to me to be honest with you um, the smaller parties I suppose are pushing for a six seats perhaps it benefits the larger parties to have smaller constituencies I mean if if you had three these seaters, are the larger parties who would have passed this legislation I suppose so yeah but it's I don't know for sure if that's what fed into their thinking but there would you would have so to forgive have, me you would for being to, a little uh, suspicious you would have to be a bit suspicious for sure it, uh, all, but, it all goes back to De Valera's gerrymander in nineteen forty when Thunder Public uh, seemed to be on the rise. And this was the uh, boundary change that got, got rid of the last few of these really big constituencies. So since then, uh, it, basically the larger parties, their general sense would be, as Cormac said there, that three-seat, four-seat, five-seat constituencies are good for them. Seven, eight, nine-seat constituencies are not good for them because they feel like back in the good old days, You'd have a farmer's party TD in a nine-seater. You'd have a centre party TD. In the good old days, a lot of the smaller parties were able to pull out one seat in the nine-seater because the quota is only around 
if you've got to fight a three-seat constituency, it's much harder for a small party to pull out a seat there because the quota is up to 25%. Ironically, on present poll trends, this focus or this decision to retain smaller constituencies, I suspect if the polls stay as they are for the next general election, there's one party that'll really benefit from this and that'll be Sinn Féin and not so much Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. What do you think, Theresa? I'd have to say I come in on this from the point of view that usually conservatism and policy sclerosis explains an awful lot of the outcomes we have rather than kind of malevolence or conspiracy in in the background. To a great extent, I'd have to say, I suspect the reason we have three, four and five is because we've seat constituencies is because we've had three, four and five seat constituencies for 60 or 70 years. So I shouldn't overplay the qui bono, who benefits element of this. I mean, I I suspect to, to some extent there's a great deal of caution. I mean, we have to remember we have a very old democracy. It's a very stable democracy. It has worked very well up to now and I think that kind of informs a certain amount of reluctance to move away from uh, move away from structures and I think it, it's also like there's definitely Right now, looking at the numbers, six-seat constituencies would really be very helpful for Kerry, Wexford, Donegal. There are a whole load of places, Tipperary, it will resolve issues. But it probably wouldn't be a great idea to move to six-seat constituencies on the back of a current set of circumstances. I think it would be a much better thing to step back and say, well, why don't we go back to the nine-seat constituencies that we, we used to have? Because generally speaking, bigger constituencies within our electoral system give more proportional outcomes. There is a much closer relationship between the votes cast uh, for a political party and the number of seats that they get in par- in Parliament in the Dáil. So, like, Isn't there on, also on quite a likely outcome, as, as Adrian touched on there, where, where there were a number of small parties in the early days of the state, which, which, which then disappeared. We have a more variegated political landscape now. Um, we have sort of three medium-sized parties and then quite a number of, of smaller entities. So the larger constituencies would be more likely to capture that. Absolutely. And I think that's the reason why we should reflect on the number of seats rather than kind of finding nice solutions for a particular current set of electoral arithmetic that's before us, it makes much more sense to step back and say, look, our our system has changed quite a lot. Our political preferences have evolved a great deal. Uh, there, there's much more fragmentation um, uh, to be found in political values and attitudes in the electorate. And it might be better uh, in terms of facilitating that reflection in the doll to move to larger constituencies. And we, we have a model from the past of up to nine. But remember, there are lots of models around the world some countries have just a single constituency for their whole country uh, and people are elected directly from that. So there, that there would is be no very confusing if you had a single constituency for 180 seats or something I, I, like I'm, that. I'm not entirely sure that I'm advocating for that here. But like that there, would be a very long, it, it very would be long a great count. It would be a wonderful count. Well, of course, it would diminish that kind of behaviour as well. But, yeah. you know, there are a lot of different mod- models. But even within our own system, if we go back 70 or 80 years, there are different types of, of constituency structures. And looking back uh, that at that, I'm not sure have. how much we can learn from the way that, for for example, the, you know, the early days of the free state, things worked. But a, a nine-seat constituency is very different. And we know that the nature, the shape of the Irish electoral system has actually you know, seriously influenced the nature of Irish politics as well. You know, intra-party disputes and inter-party disputes and, or, you know, people breaking up different geographical parts of large constituencies between them. Presumably, all those dynamics change quite significantly.
significantly if you get up to a nine-seat constituency, which most people alive can't remember seeing one of those. I mean, the only one I can think of off the top of my head was Galway back in the um, early days after the foundation of the state, but there were a couple of them um, in the country. Yes, a lot of those dynamics would be amplified. Um, I, one of the other things I suppose that, that's worth saying, though, is in addition to talking about the, the numbers and how they're located, there, there are other arguments that are sometimes put forward um, that we should actually have fixed boundaries and allocate the, the numbers so we should divide the country up into a number of electoral areas and after each election apportion um, uh, the number of TDs based on those fixed boundaries. We do something different. We fix the boundaries, we change the boundaries and that can be somewhat um, uh, dislocating for, for voters. They find themselves voting previously in a, in a constituency on, on one side of a river and then the next election they're on the other side. I'll, so I'll it, give it's you dislocated. an example. I'm from Swords 2011. The estate that my parents lived in was cut off from the rest of the town and put into Dublin West instead of Dublin North. It, it was bizarre to be that all of these strange candidates were on the, the ballot paper for one election only. And, and voters can actually find that quite dis- dislocating. So mm. there are kind of big questions and debates to be had about you how you how you do this. I mean, there isn't a you know perfect solution to a lot of these, but the establishment of the electoral commission gives us a nice um, kind of opening to begin this conversation. And we know that the electoral commission will be making recommendations to government. That's actually one of the things that's within its remit. So there is a potential for this debate really to have consequences into the uh, into the future. So in practical terms, Cormac. Listening to all that, it seems to me, looking at the the reports, including your report so far on this, is that there's quite a number of constituencies that I think of places like Mayo, Donegal, Kerry, which actually at times in the past historically were two, three seat constituencies, but are all currently five seat constituencies. We should remember there was a reduction in TDs in the wake of the the financial crisis and the political crisis of of just over 10 years ago. So now it looks as if, as a logical consequence of the direction which has been given to the Commission by the Act, that quite a number of these larger five seat constituencies will now be split up into two, three seat constituencies. Is that is that a reasonable anticipation? It's kind of, there, there's that option, or then there's the other option of the degree of Frankenstein constituencies taking in parts of other counties, which which the the the, the terms of reference of the the review aims to avoid, but sometimes the maths is the maths and the geography is geography and you can't you can't change that I mean the, the, the key example is Sligo Leitrim which currently has bits of South Donegal and parts of parts of uh, Roscommon I think as well it, in all in the all in the one all in the one constituency four different counties I can't imagine South Donegal and North Roscommon get a whole lot of of attention from from the, t- the Sligo based TDs you know it's it's that it's it, those sort of scenarios are to be avoided but when when the 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 parameters are as narrow as they are. They won't be avoided in all in all cases. We will for sure have a lot of a lot of tree seat constituencies coming out of this, but more, but more will, than we have currently. Is that I, the, I think so. Yeah, I mean, it, it would it would perhaps be a simpler uh, a simpler way of doing it than hiving off bits of counties. That is is quite an unpopular move, but uh, but they're they're the they're the two options really under the current uh, terms of reference. As Cormac said, you've made a submission to the Electoral Commission, Adrian, and I mean, you've argued for an amendment to the Electoral Act. Is that practical at this point? It's not practical at this point, but I think some of my suggestions were looking ahead to the next review, because unfortunately, once the cars come down the road, you can't bring it back up. Uh, the Commission's already going through the process of redrawing boundaries, so you can't really change an act while in the middle of it. At least I don't think so anyway. I'm not an, a, a legal expert. But yeah, as I said, uh, personally, I thought a six-seat 
constituencies would have resolved a lot of the issues that Cormac was talking about there. Because it's going to create... Uh, the Electoral Commission, as we all know, was only established back in January. Uh, normally, with the new process that was brought in after the 2009 High Court Act, normally a commission would have roughly probably a year and three months to do this work. Uh, effectively, the Electoral Commission is probably being given the hardest ever job of redrawing boundaries ever given to an independent commission. And they're being given at most uh, seven months to do it. So it's going to be a really tough process as well. Uh, some of my suggestions are looking ahead to the next time. One of the suggestions I would suggest is that they follow the UK model uh, for the next review. They can't do it this time because there just wasn't enough time. But for the next review, maybe uh, before the public submission process begins, uh, publish a draft map of their thinking in terms of where they're going with this review. Because I find with the public submission process, a lot of times people are they're making submissions into a vacuum. So take the present process. Uh, we don't know how many seats the commission's going to end up with. We all suspect it'll probably be at the upper end of the range, but uh, the range of options that are available are very different for a 171-seat scenario than they are for a 181-seat scenario. So one thing I would like to see is the commission drawing up draft maps. And that means when you've got the public submission process then, uh, people can see the way the commission is thinking. And... I was on the local elections re boundary review committee for Dublin and the other cities way back in 2008. Everyone makes mistakes in the process. Unfortunately, the way we have it at the moment, uh, by the time the commission will publish its map, there's no time to go back on the mistakes. Whereas if you have a draft map, at least you can draw, draw it up and then people can look at it and say, oh no, I don't like that boundary line. It's going through the middle of Enniscorthy and so on. I think it's a pity they couldn't have brought in for this review because uh, definitely there's going to be a lot of very tough decisions to be made in this review, especially when you have to divide up a county. So how do you draw a line through Wexford? It's slightly easier for Tipperary and Donegal if they go down the two treaty constituency routes with those counties because they have a history being divided, but there's no history in Wexford. So there's going to be some messy boundary lines drawn. And uh, I think it's a pity that for this review, I think I know time was the issue this time. It's a pity for this review that there wasn't the prospect of letting people in Wexford see, okay, Wexford's going to be divided into two three C constituencies. And here's the map. This is one option they're thinking about. This is a second option they're thinking about. What do you think about this? And then people can go and say, well, no, if you draw that line that way, it's right through the outer suburbs of Enniscorthy and it doesn't make sense. It'd be kind of the same as what happened to Cormac in Swords. The same would be done exactly. to Enniscorthy. Yeah. I can imagine, Theresa, I mean, that makes lots of sense at one level, but I can imagine a lot of people in the political establishment saying, oh my God, there'd be absolute war then for months when people actually saw the actual... But I suppose that's democracy, isn't it? I mean, I think, in, in, first of all, democracy is not pretty when it's being done. And I think we sometimes just have to get over, get over that. I, I mean, in principle, I think the more information you can put into the public domain in advance of a consultation, the more valuable the assessments you're going to be, get... 
I also sat on a boundary commission. We did the one for 2019. Apologies to anybody who was um, uh, offended by some of our decisions. But I mean, you do make imperfect decisions um, because you have competing um, uh, criteria sometimes. So continuity on the one hand would tell you to do this, but not violating county boundaries might lead you to a different outcome. And how do you weigh the different, um, you know, the different combinations? And so this is an imperfect science. And I think that that you know, is the case all around the, the world. So the more information you can give to people to assist them in making informed submissions, I think the more valuable it would be. But I do think you would then have to resource that because you are going to get very large numbers of submissions in with very specific assessments. And just because I have sat on one of these before, you know, not everybody sending you in a submission takes account of all of the criteria. So ultimately, you're still going to have to make adjudications with all of the criteria in mind. And come but from up your with experience, that would still be a valuable exercise because there might be things that would be pointed out to you that you, that you would take on board. I, I mean, Good I think point. it can be a valuable thing, especially a, a, around actually geographic features, rivers, mountains, uh, the ways in which communities operate aren't always known to you and um, the kind of orientation towards particular towns. I, I, I mean, I think it's particularly relevant for local elections where you're drawing much smaller ones where sure. community integration is, is so much more important. I think at the national level, I think the principle is still uh, valuable, but the extent to which you're going to get in information when you're dealing with for example, the county of Donegal or the county of Mayo. I mean, a lot of the major information will be before you. But the insight of citizens on the ground and people working in the campaigns is always valuable. Um, so if you have the time to do that and it's resourced properly, then I think it could be a valuable uh, a valuable change. But I do agree with Adrian that uh, this is a process that is going to be probably the most significant redraw we've had in decades. And it's really being done in a very pressured, uh, pressured time frame. So it, it is a very big ask of the Electoral Commission. Mm, we're going to take a, a quick break here. Uh, but before we do, just to remind you that if you do want to follow all of how this pans out over the next few months and indeed into next year and possibly how it pans out at the election and beyond. Cormac, you and me will be, we'll be covering that sure both will. in this podcast but also on irishtimes.com and if you're not a subscriber, you really should do it now. Go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe. We'll be back after this. And welcome back. We're discussing the... Uh, the decisions to be made by the Electoral Commission fairly soon, Cormac, before the break, we were there seemed to be general acceptance around the table that whether or not it's a good thing, the reality is we are going to see more three-seater constituencies in the uh, in in the next election. And one of the things that strikes me about that is thinking back historically to the famous Tullymander of the general election of 1977, which was really the final big gerrymander that led to electoral reform and the more independent approach that we have now. The nature of that was that the Minister for Local Government at the time, James Tully, operating on the assumption that three-seater constituencies would benefit the existing government, uh, coalition government of Labour and Fine Gael, introduced a lot of them. Um, obviously didn't read his opinion polls very well, or at least the opinion polls mis- misled him because in fact they hugely benefited Fianna Fáil. And one of the things that strikes me about that is not just that three-seater constituencies are less representative, but also that they're possibly more unpredictable um, and may fluctuate more depending on fluctuations in the polls over the course of an election campaign. So. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the current polls with Sinn Féin and the, the low 30s and in many of them, you would have to assume in a three-seat constituency they will get one seat for sure. Uh, but then then there's no guarantee that the other two medium-sized parties, the Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, will both get the, the remaining seats, you know, one or other of them might get one. Uh, if there is a high-profile Sockden candidate in a particular constituency, they might be in line for the third seat then, or or Labour, or or the people before profit, you know. Or, in particular constituencies, 
Sinn Féin might bring in a running mate and get two out of the three. You know, it, that, that's so there were times at the last election, for example, in five seaters, four seaters, and five seaters in particular, where Sinn Féin left a seat behind them because they didn't run a second candidate, and presumably they're not going to make that, that mistake well, they again. They certainly the next won't time. be making that mistake. But how time. does that work in a three-seat constituency? It would depend on the constituency very much. So, you know, it, the sort of place where I'm thinking that they might get a second in if it's a three-seater is in Donegal, you know, if they split that into two three-seaters, there is every opportunity for them to get get somebody else over the line. They've already got two high-profile TDs there, uh, Porg McLaughlin and Pierce Doherty. So, you know, that places like that, they would have to pick their constituencies carefully in that scenario, but it is not beyond the bounds of possibility, I think, that they could do it. Uh, but I think what's much more certain is that you can't just guarantee Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael will get the other two seats. It's, it'll be much more of a scrap for the, the second and third seats. I mean, I just come in and say, if we think about the past, uh, the combination of three, four and five seat constituencies, that's what gave us the two and a half party system. Mm. Basically, most of the country was covered with three seat constituencies. Invariably, Fianna Fáil got two of those three and Fine Gael got the third one. And then in some of the big five seat constituencies in urban areas, that's where the, the Labour Party squeezed in or some independents uh, squeezed in. But but now with the complete transformation and the electoral dynamics, it's going to be very, very difficult to predict those things because the other picture, in addition to your first preference vote, um, there's also the internal transfers that political parties get. And those are also more unpredictable in the way that our first preferences are unpredictable. That kind of loyalty to parties doesn't exist anymore. So people don't vote one, two, three for the same political party. So the way Fianna Fáil were able to secure two out of three seats for 70 years was because there were high levels of intra-party transfers. So when the first candidate was elected, they had a large surplus and a large part of that went to the next Fianna Fáil candidate running in the uh, in the constituency. But that kind of intra-party uh, solidarity, that kind of loyalty to parties has completely collapsed. Um, and that means that the transfers are much more unpredictable. Parties are doing well if they can get 50% um, you know, solidarity in, in, in transfers. So that makes it more difficult. Sinn Féin actually at the last election did very well in terms of the solidarity on its transfers. Uh, it went to the second candidate, but there were only a very small number of constituents where they ran second candidates the last time around. So, so maybe a lot of the time, SOC Dems and people for people profit, for profit and especially, benefited. they benefited very, uh, very heavily. So that, that kind of, you know, the unpredictability is, is operating at multiple layers of the electoral process. And, and that's why it's so, the electoral outcomes that we're seeing are so volatile. There's so much change from one election to the, the next election. So it would be indeed a very dangerous game uh, to get involved in designing constituencies with the expectation of advancing one group over another group. That's why I think kind of general principles of kind of higher numbers of, of seats in constituencies being associated with better representation. It's it's a good principle and it would certainly encourage, um, you know, greater use of four and five seat uh, constituencies. That, that certainly seems to me to be true, Adrian. However, I must say the muckraking journalist in me uh, relishes the thought of an even more unpredictable election, which could really, you know, you could get bigger swings, I think, in the ultimate dull result, couldn't you? Uh, between, let's say, Sinn Féin came in at the lower end of their scale or their upper end of their scale in terms of their share of the popular vote. Yeah, just to say on the three-seat constituency, it's like the Tullymander. Three seats weren't created everywhere with the Tullymander. They were only created in the Labour and Fine Gael strongholds in the east of Ireland. And we're going to see the same with this upcoming report, if the, the way it pans out is the way I believe it will be. There will be more three-seaters. But unless they go down a certain route with Fingal County, none of those three seizures will be in Dublin. Uh, in Dublin, on average, 
the number of seats per, per constituency will be likely to increase quite a bit. So there's not that many five-seaters in Dublin at the moment. So in the case of the extra five or six seats that'll go to Dublin, a lot of those five or six seats will be basically subsumed by Dublin Midwest becoming a five-seater, maybe Dunleary becoming a five-seater, Dublin Rathdown becoming a four-seater. So on average, the average number of seats in Dublin will probably increase quite a bit. Uh, all the three-seaters will be in rural Ireland, and that's going to be going to be quite interesting as well in terms of how this pans out politically because if Sinn Féin continue on an upwards trajectory uh, the current constituency configuration could make it a lot easier for them to hit some very high numbers in seat levels because if say they get 38% nationally uh, they're probably going to be higher than that in places like Dublin South Central if that becomes a five-seater three Sinn Féin out of five is a very strong possibility if Donegal becomes two three-seaters, two out of three is almost certain with those numbers. So that's one interesting dimension. The other interesting dimension is what it means for the gender quota. Because the gender quota will go up to 40%. The gender quota target will go up to 40% at the next election. Now, on average, it's easier to bring in new candidates in five-seaters than it is in three-seaters. Because there's more scope or there's more of an opportunity space for new candidates to make a mark in those constituencies. If things pans out the way I think they will with this constituency redrawal, there's a strong likelihood is that when it comes to applying the gender quota next time, you're probably going to see a lot of political parties probably going 50-50. You'll almost get probably gender parity in terms of candidate selections in Dublin because it's much easier to run new and particularly new female candidates in those areas. And you might find parties are below 30% in terms of their number of female candidates in rural Ireland. So I think the, the boundary withdrawal could lead to an even bigger gap between urban Ireland and rural Ireland in terms of female candidacy levels and female representation. My goodness, there's so much very thought-provoking stuff in that comment, just in relation to the gender quotas, or maybe actually to you, Theresa, on this. I mean, at the last election... Um, it seemed to me that what Adrian describes uh, as as new candidates were sometimes token candidates, uh, quota meeting candidates, and it'll become more difficult for the parties to get around to do that sort of jiggery pokery next time. Absolutely, um, the Fianna Fáil and, and Fianna Gael barely met the thirty percent, um, uh, and I think more particularly Fianna Gael was very close to the the threshold the last time around, and there were a number of female candidates added cl- quite close to the election, and a lot of them had never contested an election before, which is and really what, had no real electoral chances, chances of success. Well, they they were weak. Um, I mean, your electoral chances are are always going to be weaker if you haven't previously contested a local election or if you're not elected at at a, a local level. I mean, we know that local authorities are a pipeline international politics. So when we see a lot of candidates being added close to the election without any electoral experience, uh, there's always a, an alarm bell. It's not a definitive rule, but there's an alarm bell that this is somebody that's being added uh, for the sake of uh, of meeting the quota. I think a lot of the parties are very aware of the fact that the, the threshold is now going to be 40% the next time around. So they're probably been planning, but we're going to face uh, you know very significant challenges. Those are variable across parties though, because um, Fine Gael is again an interesting one to come back to. Um, and I even read another announcement that there was uh, David Stanton is not running that's the in the paper in a couple of months. Now, couple of months. So they have quite a number of incumbents who are stepping back from politics at kind of towards the 
kind of calling uh, an end to their careers. So that actually creates opportunities. That means it's easier to actually, when there's a space, uh, it's easier to put a, a woman onto the ticket at that point. The big challenge that the bigger political parties, particularly Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael had, is that they had a large number of male incumbent candidates. And it's very hard to turn around to somebody who's either a TD or who's been running for your party for a long time and say, well, we don't need you anymore. There's this new law and now you're out. Uh, whereas when somebody is stepping back from politics, a space is created. So it's easier to manage that particular transition. But the fact that it's going from 30 to 40 percent is, is moving the, the uh, kind of sure. threshold that little bit, uh, little bit further. But I, I think it's also worth keeping in mind, though, that the nature of the electoral system in, in, in PRSTV, it also punishes over-selection. Um, so parties run the risk of losing seats that they might otherwise have held on to if they select too many candidates. So uh, the parties won't be just adding kind of female candidates, uh, you know, uh, willy-nilly towards the end of the electoral process. Because if you end up running kind of more candidates than than you should based on the final vote you get, it could be that those votes are split across a number of candidates. They're clustered towards the end of the, the list uh, and none of them ever really get into the into the running, particularly because of that intra-party solidarity that is breaking down. So maybe the votes don't transfer as candidates are being eliminated uh, and you end up with a candidate maybe with a reasonable vote, but not close enough to the, the electoral quota. Parties have to be very careful in how they calibrate their selection processes. And there are very big challenges ahead. There are moving boundaries. Uh, there are very volatile opinion polls and there are legal obligations in relation to the gender quota. So whilst the Electoral Commission has a high pressure job ahead of it, um, most of the political parties are also facing very complex decisions that they're going to have to make in terms of how many candidates do they field, of which genders and where they're going to locate hate them and they're not going to be able to start making a lot of these decisions until into the autumn this year when the information becomes available on the uh, electoral boundaries. And those questions of gender selection and the quota are definitely something that we're going to return to on the podcast because I think they're going to be a really interesting factor in the run-up to the next election. But Cormac, the other the other uh, element which uh, which Adrian mentioned there, I also find interesting because he paints a picture really, I'm oversimplifying slightly, but not entirely because we already referred to Kerry could go from five to two, three seaters. Same could be true for Donegal. Same could be true for Mayo. Same could be true for Wexford. Tipperary was mentioned there. I would add to that Leash Offaly and Carlo Kilkenny. You know, a, a very different electoral map of the country where you have a lot of three seaters in more rural constituencies and a lot of five seaters in urban constituencies, not just in Dublin, because I think we're talking about uh, bulking up the constituencies in, in Cork City as well, aren't we? So that's a that's a very interesting kind of a change. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be interested just to pick out one or two. Or look at Kerry, if they do Kerry North, Kerry South, how is that going to shake up? Will there be a Healy Ray in both? Will there be additional Healy's Rays uh, running in both as well? Could they potentially take two I'm out of three? I'm not sure that's the correct <laughs> uh, It's It's not just... The, the three medium-sized parties that that this will will potentially benefit or or hurt, and there will be very interesting constituencies all over the country. That's just one particular one that 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 springs to mind. Um, but even Tipperary would be interesting too. You know, you'd have to you'd have to assume there will be, a, you know, a strong showing from Sinn Fein on both Tip North and Tip South. But we'll have Michael Lowry and Tip North. I suppose you know he's he's always had a strong base. If he's if he's going again, which I have no reason to doubt that he will, you, you'd have to assume he gets it. Then then what? happens with Alan Kelly you know is he going to go again uh, Fine Gael don't have a, a TD in Tipperary at the moment would they expect one in, in both Tipperary North and Tipperary South you know 
it's, it's they're, well, they're McGrath in the middle of it all. South, you know, so. in the south, yeah. Well, that's a very interesting point, yeah. isn't it, Adrian? Because I mean, we can talk a lot about what opportunities might lie for parties, but there are also parties which are undeniably going to be on the defensive. And chief among them is Fine Gael. It's been in power for three electoral cycles. Uh, it's gradually been declining for quite a while. It's reasonable to expect that it has a good chance of getting another kicking at the next election. And in constituencies where rural constituencies, for example, where as you said earlier, it could always expect to have a chance of of one seat out of the three, you know, it's that that trend can be exacerbated by this introduction of three seat constituencies and it could be wiped off the map. In it could places, be. Badly. Yeah, that's a good point. And just kind of throwing the flip side to the point Theresa said about uh, the number of Fine Gael, uh, TDs who are standing down in the next election, that also causes problems because an incumbent generally gives you an advantage in the constituency. They've built up a vote base. People know them. So constituencies like, say, the John Paul Phelan, for instance, who Carlo Kilkenny is a five-seater. Next time round, we're expecting we'll have two three-seaters in that constituency area. So probably Carlo North Kilkenny or Carlo East Kilkenny and the rest of Kilkenny. Now, normally you'd say Fine Gael would expect to win, be competing for seats in both those constituencies. But at the moment, given their uh, polled trajectory, and also given what's also interesting as well with Fine Gael is, if you look at polls, some of the polls that give a geographic breakdown, you're sort of thinking, or you get the sense that maybe the Fine Gael numbers are holding up, or maybe even slightly lower, slightly higher in urban areas such as Dublin. But where they seem to be struggling in the last year or so is rural Ireland. So that's another factor to throw into the mix. So, uh, Fine Gael will have to make a lot of very big decisions over the next, from August onwards. And the, the, the fun thing, well, not the fun thing for the parties, the fun thing about this is the amount of time you have to make these decisions is going to be quite short because, as Theresa noted, uh, we're expecting the report to come out at the end of August. September, the door is starting again, so probably September's lost. And then you're kind of counting down the months until the next general election. It could come as late as February 2025, but what if it's in the autumn of 2024? So that means, effectively, political parties have to be planning to select candidates and get them established, get them well-known in constituencies, and they have probably less than 12 months to do that. If you're on the upswing like Sinn Féin, it's a bit of a bother, but it's not too bad. But if you're struggling, if your poll numbers are going down, if you're scrambling to hold what you have, then it becomes a major challenge. So I mean, let's talk about a practical example of that. I think you were you were talking to the former TD, Fine Gael TD, uh, Noel Rock Cormac. Uh, he was uh, he had a seat in Dublin Northwest. There was a constituency revision where some of his heartland, I suppose, could said, was moved over to Dublin Central. Much to the delight, I suspect, of Pascal Donoghue, um, who managed to retain his seat in that constituency, but Noel Rock was gone. So he's he's hoping to run again, is he? I, I, in all honesty, I, I don't know, but I, I, he has made a, a submission to the Electoral Commission, uh, which would suggest he's keeping his options open. Uh, I w- would note that the, the submission to the Electoral Commission was made as, quote, a concerned citizen uh, about the, the Dublin Northwest constituency, which, of course, was his his former constituency. And it's currently a, a three-seater. It's got Desi Ellis, Roisin Shortall, and um, who's who's the other? Oh, Paul McCulloch, Oliver Fianna Fáil. Um, 
it's he no rocks argument on on that one now. And to be to be clear, he he definitely blames the last boundary review for for the loss of his seat. I think it was twenty percent of his votes. He he believed were were gone at the stroke of a pen. Was the way he put it. Uh, they they were areas of Drumcondra that had previously been part of of uh, Dublin Northwest. Uh, but in his submission to the commission this time around, anyway, Noel is saying that uh, he believes it should be a four seater. Uh, that he's not being prescriptive in terms of where the boundaries should be, other than to say it should be all within the M50, which which Justin might creep back in the Drumcondra direction, I suppose. But um, you know, it's. What do they it, say? But a man will believe anything if his salary depends on it. Sure, but I mean the the the, the one thing about it, I mean these all of these all of these submissions by TDs and senators are serving or go, or gone can be seen to some extent as being you know in their interest. Uh, you know they're not going to suggest changes to boundaries that that would or changes to numbers and constituents that are going to harm them. On the other uh, hand, to be fair, the areas of you know some of the suburbs of Dublin Northwest are areas that seeing building and expansion and probably a rising oh, sure. population. Oh sure, yeah, abso- absolutely. And that, that's that's the point made. He, his argument actually is for better proportional representation, as what we've been saying all along in this podcast. That uh, you know, in terms of three seaters not offering great proportional representation. I would say even if he got the four seats, I mean, the last election he he came fifth in the constituency, so you know he'd still have a fight in his hands uh, if he was to if he was to go again. Uh, on the on the flip side of that as well, uh, there was a submission from Nessa Horrigan, the the Green Party TD, who's who's got a little bit out of the cold at the moment with her own party. Uh, she's in Dublin Central, the, the adjoining TD, and she her point again, she wasn't very prescriptive, but she was saying that oh, constituency boundaries should not change at every single election because people develop a relationship with the people in their constituency, which is a genuine point. But I suspect she wouldn't like to lose those parts of Durham Condra to Dublin Northwest as well. Do you know, so it's uh, there, there are all these pushes and pulls uh, in neighbouring constituencies, and and that's that's what makes this whole thing so fascinating, at least to political nerds like myself. Uh, but you know, that's just one constituency. It's the fate of two TDs or more TDs, including Pascal Donoghue, and that's scenario, and that'll be replicated you know, right right across everywhere. the country. Can everywhere. I pull the lens back a bit, um, Theresa? And because I'm sure some people listening to this will will want to ask this question, which is, um, this is the constitutional requirement: representation of between twenty thousand and thirty thousand. That was set many many years ago in a very different Ireland, which continued to decline in population for a couple of decades after that, but is seeing you know remarkable by international standards, by European standards, population growth now. Do we really need more bloody TDs? Is it not time for a constitutional amendment? I mean, we could have up to 256 now, I gather, on the basis of you went to the upper limit of 30,000, which we're, we're not doing. But isn't 160,000 sufficient? Maybe we should have a look at that. Or 160 TDs, rather. Uh, there's no perfect answer to how many, um, you know, uh, TDs you should have for per head of uh, per head of population. Um, most European countries, the, the kind of the, the point at which their their parliaments are fixed are kind of a function of what it was set at when the parliament in its current structure was established and kind of population with some adjustment for population uh, population growth over time. And so the, kind of the number of MPs in the House of Commons hasn't increased exponentially to the same extent that the population of, of the United Kingdom. Has. No, we say there's there's usually a, what we call a curvy linear relationship. It's uh, between the number of TDs and the uh, size of Parliament. So there's there's kind of linear growth uh, in in the initial population phase, but it tends to level off. So actually, the the size of Parliament, actually the relationship between the number of TDs you have and the number the the, the population you have, kind of there's a critical turning point around maybe over 200 where that relationship changes in terms of its scale and it kind of tends to to flatten 
written off. That being said, we're we're not um, you know terribly close to that yet. There are a lot of other small European countries um, that have uh, parliaments around the size of two hundred, and like there are good reasons kind of to take a step back and think about this. There there are probably a set number of TDs that we need to populate parliamentary committees uh, to provide a bit of choice for uh, Taoiseach in terms of choosing ministers. Um, and, and if we think about particularly the reforms of the Dáil that started to take place much more substantially from 2016, we gave very significant roles to parliamentarians in terms of scrutiny of legislation. Committees are much more important. There are very significant roles to be filled. And yet and we do hear you know, complaints from backbenchers that they're just voting fodder and they don't really have a lot of input into policy. I mean, I think there's always a balance in that relationship, but I think we will be able to say that over time, actually, the roles of parliamentarians have evolved. Some of those reforms have come back because this uh, government has a majority. But there are still useful things like pre-legislative scrutiny and post-legislative evaluation that are now built into the system that were not there before uh, 2016. And that means that there there are a set number of committees, there are a set number of people you need, there are uh, ministers of state, and government business and policy formation is going to get more and more complex into the future. So there are good arguments to be said for having a, a reasonably large-sized parliament. But we don't want to have exponential growth at the same time as well. So there's probably a point at which we need to revisit this uh, this debate. Um, I mean, I was reading a piece coming up on the train this morning. The kind of major reason that most parliaments actually shrink is because of economic recession. And actually, Ireland is one of the examples that was quoted in that, re- uh, that research. The size of our doll actually did come down um, in as a kind of a cost-saving measure for no good political rationale. Um, it it rationale. had a political symbolism to it, it as had well. A symbolism everybody to was it. tightening um, their belts. So, but but actually, know. it wasn't a terribly useful symbolism because in the end, we actually had to increase the size of the doll at the next election again. So I, it's my point about, you know, you can find very simple fixes for electoral arithmetic that presents in front of you right here, right now. But actually, it might be better to inform a lot of this analysis by kind of conceptual thinking rather than kind of easy fixes to, to solutions. So I think into the future, we probably do need to come back and have a look at that um, because we don't need parliament to grow uh, exponentially. A lot of parliaments cap their size. The European Parliament, for example, is at 705 right now and there's a cap of 732. So they've decided beyond that, they're really, it's not um, possible to manage an effective parliament. Um, once we go above maybe 220, uh, then maybe we need to have that uh, that conversation. And there are lots of other examples around Europe that we can look to in terms of shaping that. But I think we need to be very careful, though, because uh, we have to remember that whilst our, our national politics work terribly well, we have absolutely pathetic local uh, government in, in this country. I mean, their research that's done all across Europe puts us last in every single category in terms of the fiscal autonomy of local government, their their capacity to, to actually take decisions, their capacity to actually make any policy innovations. Um, and so we're often very kind of fixated on, on numbers. The representation ratios at local level are also hugely out of sync. Um, our our uh, councillors actually represent very large numbers of people in comparison to their European counterparts. And there's huge variation as well within the country. So if you happen to live in Leitrim, Cavan, you might have one councillor for every two and a half thousand people. If you live here in Dublin City or in Cork City, you have one councillor for maybe every five, six or seven thousand people. So there's huge inequality in terms of the layers of of representation as well. So um, when it comes to kind of looking at representation, we should look at it in its totality. Um, We're maybe veering towards the kind of upper end in terms of representation at national level. But there's an awful lot of compensation that's going on for the very poor structures that we have at, at local level, which, by the way, we made a lot worse, actually, in the course of the kind of recession years as well, particularly by some of the reforms and 20 
2014. So I think there's a kind of a bigger picture that we would want to slot all of these debates into. But I think we're some way from having to kind of make a critical decision just yet. I will say I've been dipping into the, the more than 500 submissions made to the Electoral Commission and there are several from members of the public suggesting that we should have a referendum to cap the number of, of politicians at 160 or 180. I didn't notice any politicians calling for, for such measures uh, or any sort of limits on, the, on their numbers. It's just one observation on that. Yes, but you should always ask those people who make submissions whether they'd be happy to lose the TDs in their constituency. That's always the follow-up question. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to get rid of one of, one of mine. Um, make my, make, make well, my, my, the my one, small the one chance we had to get rid of some politicians was the, the referendum on the Shannon and we decided to keep it. So there you go. Yeah, that, that is true. What about that, that bigger picture, um, Adrian? Because it is, I mean, whatever about the question of the adequate form of representation, it, it is there is a bigger picture about the, the disastrous state of our local government is a you know very telling yeah it? and on the other hand as well we've got county councillors and city councillors who are worked to the bone as well they get a certain stipend but i one of the things i do is i track obviously candidate levels but i also track resignations from the council and the one thing i've seen over the last three or four years is a lot of young first-time councillors have just given up they say it's just too much because they're given a small stipend but like the public expect their councillors more or less to do the job as a 24-7 job. Uh, they've got to do their own day job. And added to that, if you're a councillor in a county like Cork, the logistical nightmare of attending meetings is off the scale. So I think that's another factor added into the problems we have with local democracy. So we can talk about reducing the, capping the number of TDs, but that just means if you do that, 20 years, 30 years down the line, you'll have maybe one TD for every 50,000 people in the state. And the knock-on effect of that is you're going to get a lot of burnout of TDs. The only TDs who will remain will probably be the dynasty TDs. Any new people coming in, they just won't be able to hack it. They'll be like rabbits caught in the headlights. Just one last basic question to you, Cormac. When exactly do we get the result, if I can put it that way? The picture. Well, the first step is... Uh, it's early next week when the, the final census results are due to be published. That get, gets drills down into the, the nitty-gritty of the detail into local electoral areas and populations there. Then the Commission has three months to, to do its review, which isn't a, isn't a great deal of time, in, in fairness. Uh, so the end of August, uh, just as we're just as the, the doll is gearing up to return, uh, the, the dog days of the silly season, uh, this, this nightmare is coming down the tracks for, for all of our politicians, but it's going to be an absolute field day for, for the likes of me and, uh, and for, for anyone who's interested in how this is going to play out. I can see you licking your lips right now. We will leave it there. Thanks very much to, uh, to Cormac and to Teresa and to Adrian for joining us. Our producer today was Suzanne Brennan. Our engineer is JJ Vernon. We'll be back on Friday with the usual wrap, but until then, thanks very much for listening. 